This webcast is for informational purposes only. The content provided does not constitute medical advice or diagnosis, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The opinions and information provided during the webcast are for informational and discussion purposes only. We do not warrant or guarantee the accuracy, completeness, adequacy, or currency of the content provided. This webcast is not a substitute for professional psychological or medical treatment, advice, assistance, or services. Should you or a family member need help with any of the matters discussed during the program, please contact a competent licensed professional for assistance. Welcome to Caught Between Generations. I'm Dr. Merle, and we're your one-stop shop for information about caring for multiple people and multiple generations. This show is designed to provide you with the information that you need, plus practical tips that you can use right now, and they will not cost you a lot of money. Everything is designed to make your life of caring for others just a little easier. Our guest today is Dr. Mel Pohl. Dr. Pohl is a board-certified family practitioner who specializes in treating chronic pain and co-occurring addiction. He is the medical director at the Las Vegas Recovery Center. His book is entitled The Pain Antidote, the proven program to help you stop suffering from chronic pain, avoid addiction to painkillers, and reclaim your life. I thought this was a very, very interesting title that really resonated with me. At Sarah Care, which is my company, we often care for people with chronic conditions who also have chronic pain. So the phrase reclaim your life really hit home with me. At Sarah Care, we not only care for the senior who is with us during the day, but also their family caregiver. This is so important, and so I think you'll see that Dr. Paul has not only helped many people who are suffering from chronic pain reclaim their life, but as a result, helps their family members to also reclaim their lives. So welcome, Dr. Paul. It is really great to have you with us. Thanks. Great to be here. So we talked a little bit at the intro uh, about your book and how it has to do with chronic pain. So can you define just what is chronic pain? Sure. Well, we differentiate acute pain from chronic pain, uh, acute pain being related to tissue damage, so a surgical incision or a toothache or an infection or even a broken bone, the, the characterization of acute pain is that it heals and the pain goes away, disappears. Chronic pain is a really a different phenomenon and uh, it's involving uh, really the, the, the chronic impulse from wherever the pain source is generating creates a, a, almost like a, a reverberating circuit inside the brain. And as a consequence of that, the pain is sort of a, a self-sustaining uh, phenomenon. And we're really talking about uh, just a totally different uh, experience than acute pain in that acute pain is very purposeful. It's good to know that your ankle is sprained so that you don't walk on it. Chronic pain, like back pain or chronic headaches, or uh, fibromyalgia, uh, for that matter, is just a, a source of frustration and annoyance and often fear and uh, even anger and rage that just doesn't serve the function that pain is meant for. So how did you become interested uh, in the issue of chronic pain? 
Well, what brought me to, to uh, chronic pain was really my interest in, in drug addiction. I, I work at a treatment center where we treat people, many of whom are taking opioid painkillers, and uh, they get out of control with them. And often the source of their uh, initiating these medications is some sort of pain. Uh, and I would take people off because detoxification is part of the treatment program uh, where I work. And so many people had pain conditions. They'd say, well, what are you going to do about my back pain or my headaches? And I got tired of saying, go back to your pain doctor, because uh, unfortunately in our uh, Western medicine uh, model, we treat pain with, with medications that often cause more problems than, than they help. Uh, and the other part of the journey for me is that I have chronic back pain and uh, some uh, nerve neuropathic pain in my feet and uh, I was very interested in what was going on in my body and my mind and, and what I could do to modify it and, and live a good life. So, go ahead. It, it just seems to me that we're hearing a lot more about chronic pain, that it's a lot more prevalent than it used to be. I mean, is, is that accurate? I think so. I mean, part of the reason is uh, we're more aware and conscious of it, so I think it gets reported more. But let's face it, we have a, a society that is aging. And as we get older, there's more wear and tear on our joints and more uh, injuries and more medical conditions that result in pain. And the net effect is that people really are um, uh, suffering chronic pain um, with a greater prevalence probably over the, in the last uh, in the last century, but but definitely in the last twenty to thirty years. Uh, you know, modern medicine is keeping us alive longer, and uh, things are tending to break down more that that cause painful conditions. I'm glad you mentioned the word suffering because in your book you talk about the cycle of suffering. Can you explain that to us? Uh, sure. You know, the uh, the experience of pain is very individualized, but really, if you think about the hurt, you know, let's say, and we're talking about now one that doesn't go away. So if, 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 if some of your listeners are having pain in their back or... Uh, abdomen or, or neck or, or shoulder, the response of the individual to the experience of pain is really the beginning of the cycle of suffering. So there are some people that sort of take it on the chin and it is insignificant and really doesn't impair their, their life function. There are others who meet the experience of pain with resistance and with uh, frustration and with anger. That's the common, most common emotion that we see is fear, anxiety, and anger. And when we get entrenched in wanting to be out of pain, we end up generating more pain and, and really suffering more. And of course, suffering is related to thoughts and feelings, which opioids uh, are treating in the short run, but in the long run, they actually backfire. So is there a way to stop that cycle? Well, I think the, the very first uh, measure to stop the cycle of suffering is to acknowledge that it's so. One of my biggest challenges clinically with patients is really to sit with them and say, I know you have 
uh, chronic headaches and its manifestation of your thoughts and feelings. I mean, I actually, I did tell a woman that, and she said, are you trying to tell me my pain is in my head? <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, you know, you have headaches. But the implication that there's, that, that emotions and thoughts are really at the root of the experience of pain is almost insulting for people that it's, there's something illegitimate about it. So I think that the first step in really reversing the cycle is to say, okay, I get it. You know, I have to look at my thoughts and feelings. Now what? And then, of course, the book has chapter after chapter of, of mental uh, interventions that we can do, physical interventions uh, and uh, and uh, psychological or, or cognitive interventions, because really a lot of the suffering is about misinterpreting the truth. You know, uh, for example, uh, one of the common things that people say to me is that my back is killing me. Well, that's just not true, you know, because if it was true, you would have been dead a long time ago. Uh, but, you know, the power of our words and our thoughts really get entrenched in our experiences. And, and that's where we really want to help people dig in and reverse some of those patterns. You know, I think the problem is, though, it's very difficult um, to sometimes reverse it just because of your energy level. I think, you know, obviously with pain comes you're tired and you're it's very hard to dig deep and and just, you know, get yourself moving in a different direction. I think that's so true. And, uh, you know, one of the, the real considerations, uh, I wrote this book with Catherine Ketchum, and one of our considerations was how much of, of this work are people actually going to do? Uh, and we tried, I mean, we sort of have a, a, a myriad of, of thoughts and, and interventions all through the book, but we also have a, a jumpstart plan, which is, you know, what do I do in the first four weeks if I only have X number of time and X number of, of uh, energy particles? Um, but, you know, some, some of the work that, that I do with patients is really to, to point out to people that uh, can't means won't. So I, I had a patient the other day who said, I just can't get out of bed. No, you can get out of bed. You can physically move your legs. You can get your back up. You can pry open your eyes and you can step off the, the mattress. Now, it's not going to feel terribly good. Uh, it's it's going to be challenging. You'd rather lie back down. But the truth of the matter is you can do it. And when you say you can't, you're really saying I won't. And that's, uh, you know, there is some uh, courageous diligence that has to be applied to making your life better if you suffer from chronic pain. So this is interesting to me, Dr. Paul. So when you tell a patient that they can, you know, but they just won't, and they get done being very angry at you. But <laughs> <laughs> well, you're so intuitive. <laughs> and they pick up something and perhaps throw it at you, sure. and then you say, well, at least your arm works, right? <laughs> That's right. You see, you told me you couldn't move. <laughs> right, instead of a gun. You know, I'm not in this to win popularity contest. I mean, one of the things that, that, uh, that, that comment points out is that uh, I, I have a tendency to be, uh, it, the, the, the clinical term is irreverent, which means basically being willing to laugh at myself and at the, the seriousness and the, the depth of the situation because we get so wrapped up in how awful our lives are and how 
you just don't understand, and you know the 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 victimization, self-victimization that people go through. And we, uh, I mean, I work with a clinical team. I don't do this work alone. But I think it's absolutely imperative that people be sort of called up on their their attitudes about how they're suffering through life. Uh, and it's, you know, not done unkindly. I mean, uh, compassion is really key in dealing with these issues. But uh, as we're going to uh, talk about, you know, family members are so stuck in trying to make life good for the person that they care about. And we really have to give up the struggle and just make life real. Uh, and, of course, find quality in, in, our, in life experience that's going to translate into a better life. You know, I, I hadn't really planned on asking you this next question, but it, it, <laughs> but it comes to mind as I'm listening to you. And that is sometimes I see family members who get so entrenched in whatever their role is, even though they don't like the role, they get so entrenched in it, especially when they're caregiving, that when the person really begins to get better, they really get thrown off balance. All right. And sometimes without meaning to, they they actually try to get that person to be more dependent again because that's what they're used to doing and they don't know how to do it any other way. I mean, do you work with family members? Do you see that? We do and we do. Uh, we uh, pretty much insist on families getting involved uh, in some aspect of the care uh, if they intend to be involved in the person's life after treatment. Uh, and as you say, the, the family system... It really becomes ill with, in this case, chronic pain. Uh, and certainly with the families of, of addiction, we see it uh, uh, equally uh, powerful. And, you know, the term is codependency or enabling. And, and you know, those terms have been sort of used in, in, a, in a variety of ways. Uh, I think that they're valid to conceptualize if my well-being is based on your well-being, and your life is full of pain, my life is full of pain. And, and I revolve my, my thoughts and, and feelings <clears throat> excuse me, and energies are wrapped up in, in your, in this case, in your suffering. And, and I suffer along with you. Well, if the, the identified patient really changes their approach to life and they say, yeah, I'm in pain, but I want to go uh, fishing today, and the family member is continues to be entrenched in that old way of thinking. They almost, as you say, really rely on the the, uh, the patient's illness to perpetuate how they're really. Uh, uh, it's almost like a, the family finds meaning in the illness. Uh, so we see a lot of disequilibrium in families when one of the family members actually starts to heal. And it, it is imperative for families to do the healing work along with them. Yeah, it's interesting to me because sometimes actually um, in our work with patients with dementia, uh, which is far different obviously than what you're working with, but we have to help the spouse uh, or another family member actually build a life again. Because what's happened um, during a process is they don't have a separate life anymore and they don't have friends and they don't have a source of support anymore. So we actually have to work with them to rebuild their lives again so they can move forward. 
Yeah. I mean, that. It, even though the disease process and the sequela are very different, the, pro, the, the phenomena, you know, the, the family experience is very similar because it, the focus becomes the illness. You know, uh, I better not go out because uh, she might wake up and, and be in pain or uh, I roll over. She grow, rolls over in bed groaning. I better wake her up and give her some medication because she's in pain. You know, that almost mind-reading tendency uh, and and really sort of uh, almost a unilateral focus on I, my purpose in life is to, is to deal with mm. this person. You know, that's, and, and what we do when we work with families, we start, we have a four-day family weekend at Las Vegas Recovery Center. We uh, start out with people introducing themselves and asking what they would hope to gain from the experience. And most everybody says, I want to know what to do to help him or her get better. And our response is, there's nothing that you're going to learn here that's going to help them get better. We're going to help you get better. You know, you find a, a purpose and a meaning in your life. And the, the more fulfilled the individual, the, the caregiver is, the, the better their life the more likelihood that the person who's either in pain or who has addiction is going to do better. You know what? I agree with you 100%, but I will admit to you, I think you have a lot of courage because <laughs> you say a lot of things that uh, I'm sure people are like, you are you are not what I expected, and come so, on now. <laughs> actually, uh, somebody came up to me and asked me, I gave a lecture about this topic, and and, he said, and and I overheard that they said, "Do you think he really talks to patients like that?" <laughs> <laughs> and and <laughs> the truth is that I do. I mean, I love my work, and uh, you know, I I I do take very seriously what people tell me. But sometimes you really do have to uh, help them wake up to to the truth. And uh, again, they're so entrenched in these manners of thinking. And, you know, I got an MD, so I take advantage of that from time to time. So um, time is getting away from us because this conversation has been enjoyable and not at all painful. So <laughs> I want to know, um, how do people really get addicted to pain medications? Well, you know, it often comes up through the rearview mirror. Uh, we see a lot of patients. We have people who have uh, frank drug addiction who are snorting cocaine and uh, chewing Oxycontin and using heroin. And then we have a substantial percentage of our patients, and, and that's really who we talk to in, in uh, the book, uh, who really took their medicine as prescribed. You know, I go to the doctor, I have back pain, and the doctor gives me a prescription. If it's for an opiate, like Lortabs or Vicodin, uh, it'll work. But the, the body becomes used to it based on a physiological tolerance. So after a while, what worked doesn't work. And then the typical pattern is to increase the dose to six or eight instead of four pills a day uh, or to d double the strain. So to go from uh, Vicodin to Oxycodone or Oxycontin or Morphine or even uh, Methadone. And because that tolerance is built up, eventually my body becomes used to the substance and it's not normal without it. Uh, and I have withdrawal when I try and stop. What, what, what I find that's so fascinating is that people take their medicine 
not as much to treat the pain, but to treat the fact that they're dependent on the drug. And when they go between doses because of their tolerance, they're in withdrawal. So, so a lot of the pain that people experience is generated by the drug. The third part about addiction is that some people pathologically pursue their relief. And those people often will abuse the substance or go over to multiple doctors or even to go to illicit sources of, of medication to relieve their pain. So, but so many people are not, don't start this process to get high. Uh, they, they really want relief of symptoms. They have a complicit partner, which is their healthcare practitioner who's writing the prescription. It's legal. And before you know it, things get out of hand. One of the things you say more than once in your book is uh, is a warning, basically, for people not to stop taking though their medications quickly. Can you can you talk about that? Of course, uh, these are habituating medicines at the very least. So if somebody is taking a regular steady dose of an opioid, it can be potentially dangerous to stop it. So it's always wise. To consider, you know, if somebody says, gee, I'd really like to come off these medicines or lower the dose, it ought to be done with a physician's, under a physician's uh, direct care and supervision uh, because of the medical complexity. Now, that said, there are some patients who come to me and say, my doctor won't do it. They say, I have to keep taking the medication. In that case, my, my counsel is find another doctor. Okay. Do you see adolescents with... Tr- uh, opiate addiction? Uh, we The youngest uh, patient that we treat is 17 here at the center, but uh, there's no question that adolescents are struggling with the disease of addiction, worse and worse over time. And the main drug that adolescents are using now are prescription opioids. Uh, they get them primarily from a parent or a friend uh, medicine cabinet. So it's a, a legal prescription that they get a hold of. They're, they're now available on uh, junior high campuses readily. And the, the scariest thing that's, that's happened is that because those drugs are more expensive and harder to get, they're being uh, introduced to heroin uh, earlier and earlier. So we're, we have both a prescription opioid epidemic in our adolescence and uh, a heroin epidemic. So the... What people should be doing is making sure those medications are not readily available in their medicine cabinets. Absolutely. Locked up or disposed of. You know, if you get 30 pills for a toothache and you use two, the rest should be discarded. Uh, And either at a a police station or uh, some pharmacies will take back the drugs uh, or else dispose of them, uh, put the coffee grounds mixed with them, will denature them. Uh, or last case would be to, to flush them down the toilet because we don't want to get everybody high in the process. Right. So, I mean, I treated adolescents before I went into working with seniors who have these what they call farm parties. Uh and um, farm parties are where kids come in and there's a big, huge container and they just throw drugs in there that they've taken out of their parents' medicine cabinets. And then they take them, you know, um, and they get to see what the results are. So people really need to get those medications, you're right, out of their medicine cabinets so they're not available. And, you know, there is this perception that because the drug is prescribed, it's safe. Uh and I, I'll just take a, put a, a quick plug in for the fact that we now have 
legitimized sources of marijuana, and the more normalized the the uh, drug becomes in the teenager's mind, the more likely to use it, and the more likely to use it, the more likely to abuse it. So we're in for, I, I fear, a pretty serious epidemic uh, related to the legalization of marijuana. Wow. Um, so let's change a little bit. Let's talk about one of my favorite topics, which is which is food. Uh-huh. I, love, I love to talk about food. <laughs> food, glorious food, isn't that's, that's, it? Yes, oh. I think so, right? Um, but I think food is very important. My husband is a diabetic, and he was taking four shots of insulin a day and a lot of medication. We were in to his endocrinologist's office who said, well, I think we ought to start thinking about an insulin pump. And I know enough that I said, we're not going down that path. Um, We've got to find another resource. Um, And he happens to be a physician. And so I said to him, I'm going to find information for you. You make the choice where you want to go, what you want to do, but you are not going on an insulin pump. To make a long story short, we ended up in a 10-day kind of what I think of as immersion course where he became a vegan. And based on becoming a vegan, he is now giving, he is off almost all his medications. um, And he is now down to one little shot of insulin a day. And Mm. as a cardiologist, he now began telling his patients, you know, I think heart disease is a foodborne illness and we need to change your diet. Does that same thing happen with chronic pain? Are there foods that help and foods that hurt? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know that we'd have quite as dramatic a response, but I can tell you that uh, there are things that we ingest that are very unhealthy uh, uh, parts of the diet. And, it, you know, we, we could think of things like, well, the first thing has to be uh, nicotine in any form. So whether it's uh, cigarettes or uh, through vapor or, uh, you know, whatever uh, ungodly idea their, their delivery system that they're coming up with, uh, we, we know for sure that, that cigarette smoke makes pain worse. And it actually, there's some data that says in people who have acute back pain, they injured their back, smokers tend to get chronic pain from that injury much more frequently. So I can't say enough about nicotine. Uh, caffeine is is also a stimulating drug and not terribly healthy for uh, the, the. We really want to do. We, we want to encourage people to avoid inflammatory substances. Uh, so caffeine and nicotine, um, uh, the kinds of oils that uh, cause inflammation, uh, probably preservatives in, in a variety of different food substances. Um, so there's a, a, a lot of uh, sort of basic uh, things to be avoided. Um, nightshade vegetables, uh, tomatoes, peppers seem to have some inflammatory effects. Uh, frying food seems to be worse uh, in terms of trans fats. Uh, artificial sugars probably aren't terribly good. Um, so on the other hand, the things that really improve the, the, the function of the, the body, let's say, is good hydration, you know, adequate amounts of water. Um, and we, we talk a lot in the book about uh, the benefits of organic foods and uh, avoiding uh, those kinds of preservatives. We're aware that there are expenses involved in that, but uh, certainly uh, eating organically is, is healthier. And I've changed my dietary habits as a result of, of some of the research that we've done. 
there are anti-inflammatory uh, foods to add, so certain nuts, walnuts in particular, and uh, uh, tart cherries, uh, which is one of my favorites because it's, it's pain-reducing anti-inflammatory. And uh, there's actually some data that uh, the, the uh, caloric and uh, fat intake from cherries is very low, and, and we end up with, with a, a double healthy uh, benefit. Uh, blueberries also, cranberries seem to have good anti-inflammatory effects. So that's sort of a quick rundown. Um, but there's, I think uh, if people changed away from the unhealthy foods and added one or two or three healthy foods, they would notice an improvement in their overall pain level. All right. Thank you, Dr. Paul. This has um, been very, very interesting, and I think we've all learned a lot from you. How can someone contact you, get your book? Uh, the book's available at all uh, regular outlets. Certainly Amazon has it. Uh, we have a blog, thepainantidote.com, and uh, my center is Las Vegas Recovery Center.com. Uh, you can call here, uh, area code 702 515 1373. 702 515 1373. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Um, the book was extremely interesting. I really encouraged people to get it. Um, if they have chronic pain. Thank you so much. Thanks, Dr. Griff. Great to be with you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. I have two takeaways for you today. One is to remember to dispose of your medication safely. We unfortunately have a growing number of children and young adults in this country who are becoming addicted to prescription drugs, which are readily available to them in their family medicine cabinets. Look in your cabinets and make sure that none of these drugs are available. My second takeaway is to stress the importance of always having friends and activities that you enjoy. If you're suddenly the one that is experiencing chronic pain, then you need a life that will make you want to return to it. If you are a caregiver, then having friends and activities you enjoy will help assure that you do not become codependent on your spouse or become a helicopter parent. So think about your daily life. Is there some activity that you have always wanted to do or have done in the past and have stopped doing? And you say, oh, no, I don't have time for that anymore. Well, you know what? Make the time. It's an investment in caring for others, and it's an investment in your ability to continue that caring for others. It's important. This is Dr. Merle, and you've been listening to Caught Between Generations. Write to me at info at caughtbetweengenerations.com. Once again, that's info at caughtbetweengenerations.com. I want to hear your suggestions for future shows, comments, and things that have worked for you that I can share with others. Thank you for listening.